As you're seated, please open the Bible, the Word of God, to Galatians chapter 2. We begin studying verses 1 through 10, but I'm not sure we'll get through any of the verses this morning. (laughs) I've got a little bit of an introduction and, and helping us keep the flow of the passage, helping us remind us where we are in Galatians and what we've been learning and studying together. But let's read these 10 verses together as we continue studying and learning and growing together. This follows on the heels of what Paul has written so far, and he says in chapter 2, verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when John and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Father, as we come to your word, Lord, we recognize our dependence on you. Lord, the word that you've given, the, the spirit who works in your and through your word in our hearts. God, we depend on you and you alone, Lord, because you are worthy, you are glorious, you're majestic, you're holy, and you're perfect. Father, we pray that you would be glorified by what we say and do today. In the name of Jesus, we ask and we pray. Amen. Well, Paul is, as we've been learning, taking the time in chapters 1 and 2 to defend himself and his message from attacks from these false teachers that we've called Judaizers. Now, why is this so important? I thought about, you know, maybe if it was me, I might have just said, you know, there's so much trouble going on here. I'm just going to cut my losses and just move on. (laughs) Let's just leave all this trouble behind. Like, why is Paul going through all of this trouble? He's sticking here with them. You you might think he would do that, just, just move on. But Paul defends himself and his message so that they will not say no to the gospel, but yes to the gospel, because the gospel is the only one from the eternal and only God. This is the eternal gospel, the only gospel that saves people from their sins. And so what Paul has said in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, is that this gospel that he preached to them should not be dismissed. You shouldn't substitute it or change it. It can't be substituted or changed for anything else. It's the only one given to mankind for salvation from God. It's a divine gospel. It's the only divine gospel. The Galatians had believed it, or at least had started to believe this gospel, and now they're falling for a counterfeit. So Paul is laying out a case. 
He's showing them, he's demonstrating to them that this is the only gospel, the only true gospel. So let me ask you this morning, what would convince you that this is the only gospel? What would convince you that this is a divine, the only divine gospel? Now, what I thought was important is that we've said this word gospel many times in the past uh, several weeks as we've started this study of Galatians. But what is it? What is the gospel? And, and I thought, well, maybe we should just have a short time where we just remember and hear again the gospel. Let's take a minute and explain it. God, God has always existed. He was not created. He is eternal, and he is eternally perfect in holiness and love. All that he is, all that he says, all that he does is perfect and holy and pure and righteous. At a point of his own choosing, he began to create everything that is not God, all of creation. His highest creation was not angels or stars or planets, but mankind in Adam and Eve, and they were made in his image. While all of creation proclaims God's glory, Adam and Eve, mankind, reveals the image of God to creation. God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the perfect paradise of Eden, and he gave them one negative command, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Satan tempted Eve, so she was deceived, and she listened to something rather than God's word, and so she ate of the fruit while Adam followed knowingly and rebelliously. And that rebellion against God called, called lawlessness uh, is the definition of sin. That's what sin is. Whatever God says to do, you don't do. Whatever God says don't do, you do. Sin came into existence through mankind and has been passed down to every human being since that time. But it's not just sin, but the consequences that it brought. The consequences included and still include a destroyed relationship with God, ruined relationships between people, the curse from God on all of creation, sickness, and even death. But death is not the end. When mankind dies physically, then comes judgment before God. And before that holy, eternal God, sin will be judged in holiness and eternity. Every person will be found guilty before God. There was not one person who will be found righteous or good enough in good standing before God to escape that judgment of guilty of sin. Mankind has no hope from himself or from anything in this world. Every person will be sentenced to hell, God's just punishment forever, but God. God provided the way for mankind to be saved from sin and from the consequences and the effects of sin by his own righteous and just wrath against man for sin, God provided salvation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to be born as a human being to a virgin woman. He had no earthly father, so the continuation of sin that had been passed down to every person was broken in him and him alone. He was born without sin. He continued a life of sinlessness. He lived every day, every moment perfectly before the holy God, loving his holy, perfect, heavenly Father, God, 
with every fiber and strand of his being, loving the people around him perfectly. He never rebelled against God's laws. He never did or said anything that was not perfect in truth and love. He never did anything sinful, and he never neglected anything righteous. However, mankind was jealous of him and angry with him as he exposed our sins to us. And so rather than accept this Jesus, this God-man, Mankind rebelled still more by condemning this innocent Jesus to die on a cross. But while Jesus was on the cross, he took on himself every sin of every person who would ever believe in him. He took their sins on himself and he paid for them under God's wrath. He took responsibility for sins that he never committed and God treated him as if he had committed them, every one of them. So Jesus suffered not only physically on the cross, but the much, much worse, inexplicably agonizing pain of suffering under God's wrath for my sins on that cross. At the same time, while he was on that cross, Jesus gave me his perfect righteousness before God. He can give to you his perfect righteousness so that God treats us as if we had lived that perfect life that Jesus lived, born sinless and a life of love and holiness. And then Jesus died. But that's not the end either. Because after three days, as he said he would, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and all of its consequences, both physical death and eternal death under God's wrath. And then he ascended into heaven to be at his Father's right side, forever glorified, forever praised, forever worshipped for how he brought God's mercy and grace to reality to undeserving sinners, mankind. Amen. Amen. But for that salvation that Jesus accomplished to apply to me or to any of you, we must understand all of this. We must agree with all of this. We've got to believe it all so that we turn away from sin and repentance. We turn away from ourselves and this world and anything and everything else. And we turn to Jesus in faith as our only Lord, Master, Savior, God. At that moment, God regenerates us. He makes us new, recreates us from within so that we're born again all over spiritually to become alive to Him. And so now every day as followers of Jesus Christ, we live more and more conformed to the image of Jesus for the glory of God and less like our old selves and this world. And one day, Jesus will return for us. He will gather to himself everyone who has ever believed in him, everyone who lived before him and believed in him, everyone who lived during his time that he was alive on this earth, everyone who has ever lived like us afterward and has believed in him. We will be with him forever in heaven rather than suffering under the unbearable wrath of God forever. Our response is to repent, to believe. That is as complete and as clear and as simple as I can make the gospel. It's the bare minimum. It's the basic facts, but it's all the work of God with no human effort mixed in, nothing else added to it, nothing else subtracted from it, and it's all for the glory of God. So you have heard this gospel, either now or in the past. You've heard this gospel, and you have either accepted it or rejected it for something else. What is it that would convince someone that this is the true gospel? Well, we've already seen ultimately from Paul's words here in chapter 1 that it has to be the work of God in our heart. 
It has to be Him moving and, and enlightening and, and giving us this faith to believe and the repentance, the gift of repentance. But what does God use to bring us to that place? How, does he, how, would, it, how would any of us be persuaded that this is the true gospel of God? That's what Paul's doing. He's laying out a case here for why the Galatians should ditch the distorted false gospel that they're falling into and to believe that this is it. This is the only one. What does he say? Well, he's saying, obviously, we can't soften any of it. That doesn't work to to knock off the sharp edges and the offensive parts because, well, that's a different gospel and there isn't really any other gospel. It can't be changing it at all in any place or any part to a different one. We only have one message, and changing it means we've fallen for the wrong one. And you remember, Paul says that would make us worthy of anathema, God's wrath forever, to change the gospel. Well, then maybe we should just get creative, and we should appeal to people what what they want, what they need, what we think they want or need. And we've learned that that doesn't work. The gospel solves our ultimate and lasting problem of sin. It brings reconciliation between us and God and between other people. Um, There is no other problem that God is solving. There is no other solution than this gospel. There's no more pressing need, no other available solution than this gospel, this word that comes from God. Well, so then maybe we should get signs and wonders. Maybe we should have some miracles that we can do to convince people that this is the right gospel. Let me ask you, does it ever convince you when you hear of people doing miracles at some other time, some other place, or you've never seen it? It hasn't happened to you. Most people immediately dismiss miracles in their mind. They think, "Uh, it's not real. It's a trick. It's not lasting. Can't verify it. What passes for miracles and signs and wonders today are unverifiable, not witnessed firsthand, not repeatable, and not used to glorify God, but man, so much of what we hear about. Jesus did signs and wonders. He did miracles. And he said in John that he did them so that people would believe, at least believe for the sake of the signs. Jesus' signs were verifiable. They were repeated. They were irrefutable. Nicodemus even came to Jesus at night as a representative of the Pharisees. He said, we know you came from God because nobody can do what you're doing unless they did. But the Pharisees still wouldn't believe. They didn't believe in him, even though he was doing all the works. Jesus said, even if someone were to rise from the dead, people wouldn't believe. And then he proved it by rising from the dead, and people still don't believe. Jesus said they really just need the word of God given to them clearly and lovingly because it's the work of God through his word. But he uses means to bring us along to be persuaded. And Paul's giving some of that to the Galatians. That's what he's doing. Stop believing the false gospel. Believe the true gospel. And here's why. It got me thinking. This is the true gospel. How come there are so many people in the world that fall for the wrong one? Why are there so many people? How do they convince all of the people out there that all of those other religions are true? How do they convince people? I started to think about the world's major religions and some of the ones that are around us that people fall for. The Latter-day Saints. In the Book of Mormon, Moroni 10.4, this is the great promise that's given to all from the Book of Mormon that they used to persuade people that they have the truth. This is what's supposed to work in converting people. This is the quote. Quote, and when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that ye would ask God, the eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost, end quote. In other words, if you want someone to be 
convinced and persuaded that the the Book of Mormon is true and that the, the doctrine of the Mormon church is right, they need to hear the message or they need to read the Book of Mormon, and then they need to pray really hard and sincerely to God, and He'll confirm it by the Holy Ghost. You'll get a feeling inside. They call it a burning of the bosom. They say it'll just feel right. So that's supposed to persuade you that it's right, a feeling that you get inside. And it may not be the bad pizza that you ate the night before. (laughs) It may not be indigestion. It may be just the right thing. That's what's supposed to persuade you. What about Islam? What works is, well, to start with, again, as we said before, uh, you've got to ask Allah that He might, you know, actually decide to save somebody because He's capricious. Uh, He's arbitrary. He may decide not to approve you and save you, even after all that you've done. But even to get someone to want to come requires telling them all about Islam. You've got to be a really good person. And then you start giving them the benefits of converting to Islam. Islam, they say, protects you from evils. Islam gives you a sense of inner peace and tranquility. Again, that feeling that's attached to converting. Islam guides you in your life, leading you and guiding you in every area of your life so that you have purpose for your life, Islam tells you. You get paradise in the afterlife. You give them all of the benefits, including how it makes you feel, and then why wouldn't you convert? That's the persuasion for Islam. The third most popular religion in the world is Buddhism. Now, in Buddhism, there's no command to make converts. There's no clear instructions for proselytizing, making converts. There's not even an accepted set of teachings that you're supposed to bring to people. I mean, it's just, there's so much in it. Nobody really even agrees on all of it, yet it continues and it grows. How does it do that? How do they persuade people? Buddhism teaches a way of looking at the world that's appealing to people. Everybody can see problems in the world. Everybody knows about all the problems in their own life. And so few people seem to have any real answers for why are all these problems. So in Buddhism... Any kind of answer and every kind of answer that works for you is the right one. Whatever gives you peace, tranquility, whatever allows you to continue surviving in this life and makes you a better person according to what Buddhism teaches, well, then it's offered to you and you should just try it. If it works, then great. If it doesn't, then try something else. It seems so humble, it seems so sincere and curious for truth, and it's so individual and it's so appealing. And because those who convert seem to just feel better and they seem to become nicer people, people convert. They become persuaded after the feeling of peace and tranquility. Now, we can't look at every religion, but another one that's active in this area is the Jehovah's Witnesses. How do they persuade people? They go door to door believing it's the best way to fulfill the great commission of Jesus in Matthew 28. Now, what do they say when they get to your door? Or what does the literature say? Well, how do they try to convince you? It's a concealed tactic of fear, isn't it? Are you a good enough person? If not, Armageddon's going to come, and you're not going to be part of the 144,000 people who will be resurrected at the end to rule in the kingdom of God in heaven. So maybe you were a good person, but not quite good enough to be in that 144,000. You'll get to live here on earth in paradise as long as you've been good enough. How do you know? 
whether you're in that 144,000 or whether you were good enough just to be in the paradise here on earth, again, it's a feeling you get from what they call the Holy Spirit. So don't celebrate holidays because God will get mad at you. Don't take blood transfusions because God said don't ingest blood. Read the watchtower because that's how God speaks to us and teaches us. Be a good person or you'll be left out and destroyed. So if you want to have that inner peace and no fear, join the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's how they teach. That's how they persuade. Again, I said we can't look at every religion, but what about no religion, atheism? How do people become persuaded to buy into atheism? There are three reasons primarily, usually, that people fall into atheism or choose atheism. The first one is accountability to God. I don't want to be accountable to a God. I don't want to believe I'm going to have to stand before an all-powerful, almighty, holy being and answer for anything, so I'll just make believe that he doesn't exist. I'll just imagine that there is no God and that I can just live however I want because I want to have peace in making my own decisions. I don't want the feeling of accountability. I don't want the feeling of judgment coming later on or now. The persuasion is getting over that fear and having a comfort and a peace inside. A second reason is that people cannot answer big questions that they have about life. What's life all about? Why are we here? How can you have a good all-powerful God and evil in the world. These big questions and these, these, the answers that are given that are not acceptable to these people, they say, well, I want peace in figuring out the world. I'll just decide that nobody's in charge. Again, I'll just imagine that none of this is under the control of an all-powerful good God. And I can therefore have peace because I'll just claim that nobody has any idea. <laughs> none of us has it figured out. We're all just in this together. We've got to suffer through it and, and we'll get through it because... In atheism, they say there is no God. So I'll have peace in figuring out the world. You just can't. A third reason that people fall into or choose atheism is that they refuse the belief in an exclusive universal truth. I want what I want. I don't want any condemnation. I don't want people to tell me it's wrong. I don't want a God to tell me it's wrong. I want peace for myself and between others, so I dismiss all religion. That makes me feel better. Do you catch a common theme? Are you hearing a common theme in any of the systems, religions, philosophies of the world, any of the false gospels that are out there? Learn all that you can about this religion or system. Do what it takes so that you will feel better. The persuasion is how you feel. Settle your fears. Settle your doubts. You can experience some kind of peace or satisfaction. Anything that makes you feel good, there's a false religion, a false gospel out there for you to help you to feel better. Even the Judaizers in Galatia, the whole point of this false gospel, this distortion of the gospel was to get you to obey the law so that you could be sure and at peace that you were pleasing God so that you would be able to get into heaven. In fact, every false system or religion hinges on this feeling. That's why you should convert to any of these other systems. That's how they attempt to persuade you. Brothers and sisters, this includes all of those distortions of the gospel that we come up with, that we talked about several weeks ago. The add-on gospel, the expressive individualism gospel, self-esteem, positive activism, all of those things that we do. It comes down to how we're feeling, what we're thinking, what we want, but not Christianity. Feelings will come. Emotions will be present in the gospel. 
We will feel, we will have emotion. God made us as persons with emotions, with feelings, but the reason to convert is not because it will make you feel good or because it will give you peace to just feel better and cope with life. The reason to convert is not because of all the benefits that it gives you. The reason to be persuaded to receive and to believe the gospel is because God commands it for his glory and he's worthy. Say, how does that convince you? How does that persuade you? This is in your notes. The persuasion of the gospel is the glory of God. What convinces us that this is the true gospel is the glory of God. When you come to him on his terms, he accepts you. In his grace and his mercy, he accepts you when you come on his terms asking his forgiveness, not because you've done enough to earn forgiveness. Will you feel better when you have been forgiven of all of your sins? Yes. Yes, there is a feel. Like I said, there are emotions. They are involved and they're, they're important. But is that the reason that we come and that we're persuaded by the gospel? No. Will you have everything all figured out if you come to this God in his gospel? No, but you'll be trusting the one who does know everything. This is why believing the gospel is never promised to bring you good times, happy times, good feelings, no troubles, and more. This is why recognizing Jesus as Lord and Savior is never conditioned on whether you feel like it's worked or whether I've done enough to bring it about, to please God so that I can feel better. This is why when you receive the gospel so that you believe and you repent of your sins, you become less like what you want and more like what God says we should be. That's why you can't do anything to be saved to earn it. You simply repent and believe. You turn from sin and everything else to Jesus. You believe through faith and God saves you by his grace. And he receives all the credit. He receives all of the glory. That's why we convert. That's why we receive and believe the gospel. Rather than the reason being how I feel, the reason is for the glory of God. You say, is that scriptural? I'm glad that you asked that question. That's the correct question. Where are you getting that? Ephesians 1, 5, and 6, why did God predestine Christians to salvation? To the praise of his glorious grace. Why does God work all things according to the counsel of his will? Ephesians 1, 11, so that we who hope in Christ would be for the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1.14, why are we sealed by the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire it to the praise of His glory? If you'd like to, you can turn to 1 Timothy 1. Just hold your place here in Galatians and turn to 1 Timothy 1 if you'd like, or you can just listen. This is what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's one of those gospel in a nutshell passages that we talked about. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In Paul's mind, there was no sinner worse than him, no one less deserving than him. In my mind, in your mind, that's how we should understand our sin against the holiness of God. Oh, there can't be anyone worse. But listen to what Paul says. But I received mercy for this reason. Why did God save Paul? Why did God save any of us? Is it because he saw something good? Is it because we earned it or deserved it? None of that. Here's why Paul says he received mercy from God to be saved. That in me, as the foremost, the worst that there was, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
Paul says, I received this mercy, not because I deserved it. I didn't even receive this and believe this gospel because it gives me eternal life or because of what it does for me or how it makes me feel. The reason, in fact, it has nothing to do with Paul. (laughs) Paul says, I received this mercy from God. It's for this reason, so that he can display his perfect patience to me and to others. It's for his glory. That's why the very next sentence is, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The reason for the gospel, the reason for our salvation is not for us primarily. It's for the glory of God. That's what, it, that's what persuades us when, when we understand that there is a holy God that we will have to come before unless we're saved by His Son, Jesus, and that brings glory to Him. That's how we're, dis- that's how we're, we're persuaded, we're convinced. We believe for the glory of God because it's right, because He's deserving, because He's worthy, not because we're worthy, not because of how it makes me feel, but do you see that difference between every other religion, every other philosophy, every other system out there, and the true gospel? Paul said back at the beginning of this letter, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, so that we can be happy, so that we can have peace. Is that what he says? To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says in chapter 1, verses 18 to 24, after three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. I remained 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I'm not lying to you. Before God, I do not lie, he says. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Why? What happened? What was the result of that? And they glorified God because of me. It was because of what God was doing in Paul. It brought glory to God. That's the reason that we're saved. This proves it to be the only true real gospel. Everything else appeals to you as the primary focus. Here's what can help you. Here's what's for you. Here's what you not you want. Here's what you need. The true gospel appeals to God as the primary focus. That's what Paul is laying out here. Starting in chapters in chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, he says here's the gospel. And here's why you should believe it. Because it's not about persons. <laughs> it's about the person, Jesus Christ. Now, all of that is our introduction for the verses. (laughs) And I knew that we weren't going to be able to get all through 10 verses this morning, but I did think we would have a little bit more time and that we would get through at least the first point, verses 1 to 3. We haven't quite made it there yet. But we will, Lord willing, next week begin and we'll pick up with how Paul convinces them, how he shows them. How is the glory of God a persuasion for someone to believe that this is the true gospel? What does that look like? And and how can you use that as the evidence Paul will show us in these verses? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, God, for one another. Father, we praise you and you alone for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, the only hope that we have is the person our Savior, our Lord Jesus. God, thank you that this is real, that this is true, Lord, that this is, it's not questioned, questionable, Lord. It, it, it's not, 
shaky. Lord, this is the firm foundation for our faith. God, the reason that we believe is because of your work to bring glory to you. And Father, we, we praise you. We thank you that we get to be part of that. Lord, this is a joy to know the truth. Father, I pray that you would work in us not to keep it for ourselves. Lord, that we would make it our own, but Lord, that we would bring it to those around us. Father, that we would share this. Lord, we'd not be worried or concerned about people rejecting. People are going to reject. They rejected Jesus when he brought it. Father, help us to be faithful with it. Lord, teach us to be bold and loving. Lord, to fear you and not man. We praise you for this gospel. We thank you, God, that we have peace with you. We do thank you for all of the benefits. Lord, you tell us that in salvation you bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God, that comes from you, and it begins in the gospel. But Lord, help us not to think that this centers around us and focuses on us, but Lord, that it is all about Christ Jesus, and it's all for your glory. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.